Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with producer James B. Harris. Harris approached Kubrick with a proposal for a production partnership following a successful stint in sales and distribution. Subsequently, he produced Kubrick's The Killing, Paths of Glory, and Lolita prior to embarking on his own successful directing career. The, the Killing, starting, starting with The Killing, that was your uh, your debut in, in the film business, wasn't it? Yes, as a producer. Yeah, I had been in, in the distribution business, distributing films for television for, for uh, years before that. Uh, but as a producer, uh, that was that was my debut. And uh, fortunate for me, uh, hooking up with Stanley Kubrick was was uh, like uh, the best thing could could have happened because. Uh, when you're first starting out, uh, you have a real good chance of making a a, uh, a good film if you have a good director. And uh, yeah. at that at that point, of course, it wasn't uh, confirmed that Kubrick was was going to be that uh, the icon that he turned out to be. However, uh, having seen the previous films that he did, you know, uh, uh, the uh, kill, the uh, Kiss Me Kill Me was it? And, and, the Killer's uh, Kiss and The Killer's Kiss, yeah. Yeah. It had several titles before that, and and, and the war film that he made uh, before that uh, indicated to me that, he, that 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 this guy was 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 going to be going places, and, and as young as he was, he had the ability to to uh, start something and finish it and do it all himself. So anyway, as my debut, I I had a, a good partner. I couldn't have a better one. So was this a project that that you originated this 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 property and brought to Kubrick? Yeah, yeah. When we had decided to get together and, and uh, form a partnership, and I would produce and he would direct, uh, we looked at each other and said, "So what do we do now?" And there was really nothing that we had. So uh, after we had met at the end of the day, I went to a bookstore uh, on Fifth Avenue called Scribner's and uh, just looked through the the mystery and westerns and and, uh, and found a book called Clean Break, which uh, I bought the book and. and read it, and, and it was about a robbery of a racetrack, and I thought, gee, this would make a terrific movie. I, I hope Stanley feels the same way. So the next day, I gave it to him to read, and of course, he responded favorably, and, and uh, I, I then acquired the, the film rights, and, and we had something to uh, start with. Yeah. And so yes, I guess you could say that, that, that uh, I was the one that, that came up with the with the project, but um it, it really doesn't matter. Once once we both agree on it, it's it's our project, and and uh, we do it together. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know because you had such a fruitful collaboration with Mr. Kubrick and and and, and an enduring friendship. Yeah. Uh, what do you th- what do you think clicked between the two of you? I don't know. I'm I'm not a spiritual person. You know, we were eight days apart in in in. In our age, he was eight days older than, than me, and uh, so that put us under the same sign, astrological sign. But uh, I don't know what it is. I, I, I just think that, that uh, um, 
we had a respect for each other's intelligence. You know, we, we decided that we would, we would we should never be able to have a, a an argument or, or a falling out because if you can articulate your your position and the other person is intelligent enough to understand it, one should be able to convince the other. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that you could move forward together rather than have a breakup, and and so we never we never really had a dispute. The only thing is that Kubrick won most of the discussion, <laughs> and because uh, uh, he was right most of the time. Uh, but uh, you know, we I, I suppose we we came from different backgrounds. Uh, so I, I you know I had a business background, and he had more of an artistic background in terms of being a still photographer. Uh, uh, however, I don't know. He, I, I think I learned an awful lot from Stanley, and I think he learned an awful lot from me because, you know, after I decided to direct my own films, uh, he went on to produce his own films. So mm. he must have. He, he learned an awful lot in our association of seven, eight years together, and, and being best friends and everything. A lot of, a lot of, uh, of, of where we were coming from was transferred from one to the other. So. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess that's about the best answer I can give on, on why we seem to click so well together. So was the killing uh, a challenging, a challenging project to, to to get off the ground? Yeah, it was because uh, neither I had no no experience as a producer, no no, so I had no reputation to trade with, and and uh, Kubrick was not known either. Uh, most of the actors that we were after were on the West Coast, and, and so. Uh, but the first thing we had to do was get a script, and, and Stanley uh, had uh, asked me if I knew of a, knew about a writer named Jim Thompson, which which I hadn't really. And he he brought me up to date on Thompson's work and said we ought to try to get him to work with us on the screenplay, which we did, and uh, we we uh, uh, we were able to come up with I thought a, a pretty good screenplay, which. We then sent to to in bulk. We may have taken a couple of dozen of them and sent them to the same agency that we acquired the rights for the book and, and asked them to help us get it to different actors. In those days, you really didn't need firm offers. You yeah. know, uh, you know, we had no deal anywhere. We just sent the scripts out, and uh, at one point, we got a call from from Sterling Hayden's agent saying that he read the script, really loved it, and would like to do it. So now we had at least a, a, uh, a what would you would call an interest from an actor. I mean, it wasn't a firm commitment. But we went running to United Artists, uh, who had purchased Stanley's last picture, the, the uh, you know, the, uh, what was it, the killing, the... Uh, Killer's Kiss. Yeah, Killer's Kiss. They had, he had, they had purchased that. And, and at least we had an open door uh, to, to talk to them. And uh, we went running to them with the with the uh, fact that we had Sterling Hayden wanting to do this, and, and they were kind of negative on that. Uh, but <clears throat> you know, our position was that he was good enough for John Huston to do the uh, Asphalt Jungle. Why why wouldn't he be good enough for us? And they said, well, he's done a lot of westerns that they're selling in flat rentals, and and uh, you know, why why don't we go after a much bigger star? Which uh, we realized would, you know, when you have one in the hand, yeah, it's, be- it's better than, than two in the bush. So mm-hmm. um, we uh, we insisted on going with Sterling, and they said, well, then you're going to have to be limited on your budget, which means that they would only put up two hundred thousand dollars for us to do the killing. It wasn't called a killing at the time, uh, but anyway, uh, they said if, if it's going to cost more, you're going to have to put it up yourself, and you're going to be in second position which we get our money back first, and then you come next. 
<laughs> if you come at all. So, uh, but we did that, you know, rather than lose the deal, and, and I figured I, I I could scrape up uh, whatever it was going to cost above two hundred thousand because we knew we couldn't do a, a picture that looked like anything in, in with two hundred thousand. Sterling Hayden alone was going to get forty thousand dollars, you know. So naturally, mm. there was no money for us in there, and and uh, we had to do that picture for nothing, for as far as we were concerned. But I raised a, an additional hundred and thirty thousand. Uh, to complete the picture, which cost three thirty, and uh, I really bought a career. That's what I did. I, I figured that, that if we could, if we could make the picture we think we could make, and, and um, it's going to take an additional one hundred and thirty thousand. It was worth the investment, to, yeah. because it would give us our career. Anyway, that's 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 the genesis of the whole killing situation. Well, boy, it, it sure was worth the risk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, as it turned out, yeah, yeah, as it yeah. Turned out. I haven't, having not read the the book the film is based on. Uh, I mean, what strikes me about the film is the unusual, the, the unusual structure uh, yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh, was that there all along, or all along? That's that's what actually uh, intrigued both Kubrick and myself in wanting to do it as a film because we felt that structure was was unique and and uh, not seen too often in film. However, when we did the film that way, uh, we were criticized uh, at the at the previews and, and uh, showing the picture to, to friends and opinion makers and so forth. They all suggested that we re-edit the picture as a straight-line story, mm. uh, saying that the audience is going to be antagonized and, and, and hostile because every time you get to the to the key point in the robbery, you flash back to see what each participant was doing to to get to that point, and. Uh, we actually, you know, we took the attitude that if enough people told you you're sick, you should lie down. And so we said, well, maybe we should we should play around with this thing and, and re-edit it. So we took the film back to New York and got an editing room and, and spent the day putting it as a, a, back as a straight-line story. And when we got through, we, we, we looked at each other and said, what are we doing? You know, the whole reason we bought the book and, and made the movie was because of this unique structure of flashbacks uh we've got to stand by it and believe in it and and, and that's so we put it back the way that we believe it should be with uh, as you as you asked uh you know uh sort of honoring the the, the book and delivered the picture uh, as it is today to united artists they they thought it was very good um i mean they didn't they had so many movies that, that of course they didn't think that this was is going to be you know the lifesaver of United Artists, but uh, they accepted as as we delivered it, and, and uh, I think that, that we did did ourselves a real justice uh, in not listening to all of the opinion makers. Uh, so we did. So it's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, we the the, the structure, the movie is exactly the way it was in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the book was called Clean Clean Break, incidentally. It's called Clean Break, and it was written by. Terrific writer named Lionel White. You know, he wrote a lot of, of uh, crime film, crime books. So the, the 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 narration as well, which is which is very interesting because it's kind of an omniscient uh, uh, narrator. It, feel, it feels very uh, almost like a document in a way with that narration. Yeah, yeah. How how did that come into play? Okay, well, I'd like to, there's there's one reason, uh, maybe not be the only reason. Uh, Kubrick always felt very strongly about expositional dialogue and he said that he hated that he hated scenes where where 
dialogue was really created in order to educate the audience as to, as to you know, needed or essential information. And he said it'd be much better off using a narrator than to, to have to, to to write dialogue for actors to have to say all of that stuff. And uh, so Stanley was sort of inclined to to to, uh, to set the stage with with, uh, with dialogue rather than expositional dialogue. You notice we did the same in Pairs of Glory, starting that picture off the same way. Uh, it uh, another thing was that at the time you know we were kind of impressed with the Louis de Rochemont films. Do you, do you remember those? Or is that name familiar to you, though? The name is familiar. What What are some of the films? Well, I guess he did the the, uh, the 13 Room Adelaide and the House on 97th yes. Street, something like that. Okay. And, but also documentaries. You know, Time Watches On was was big. And, and you know, they had that, that Louis Van Voorhees voice that, that we mm. liked a lot. Uh, so... Um, Anyway, I think the basic thing is that, that we believe, and I learned this from Kubrick, that, that expositional dialogue is a no-no, and that you're much better off with narration than, than, than to, 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 do, to try to do dramatic scenes that are loaded with, with uh, just information to the audience. Yeah. As you, as you observed his uh, interaction with, with actors, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what kind of observations did you make about that dynamic? I, uh, well, through the years, uh, and through the films, uh, he always seemed to accomplish what he wanted in terms of getting the actors to to, to abide by or deliver his, his his requests or his instructions, and he earned it with with their respect for him. I mean, that's that's really the the what it was all about. Uh, Stanley just uh, he he was a no nonsense guy, and, and he. Uh, was able to always convince people because uh, he could back up everything he said with a reason. You know, you can't you can't ask an actor to do the scene again. You know, like say, okay, let's go again. And the actor, if he thought he did it correctly, he would say, why? Well, you know, what are you looking for? And Stanley was always be able to say and articulate exactly what he wanted, so so that the the actor didn't think he was just a self-indulgent director looking for for. Uh, uh, nuances that, that, that were, were fantasy or weren't even there. So mm-hmm. I, I would just answer that by saying that uh, he gained their respect and, and they listened to him. And, and uh, you know, most actors are looking for, for for a strong director. They're looking for somebody who really knows what he wants. And that and that's mm-hmm. what Stanley never evidenced any uh, any anything at all about being uncertain or undecided what he wants. Uh, he always made it clear what he wants, and, and it may have been difficult to do. But uh, he would stick with it until the actors did it, and and they did it because they respected and and uh, uh, believed in in uh, his reasons. So, yeah. you know, he, he he just wasn't a capricious, uh, uh, you know, self-indulging director who who didn't wasn't able to back up uh, all his uh, you know instructions and requests. And 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 of course, he had such a strong visual sense, having come from the world of photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so my understanding was that his his conversations with his cinematographer on that film, uh, I mean, he had to really set it straight that he had a vision in mind and knew how to accomplish it. Yeah, that wasn't that didn't sit too well with uh, with the cameraman on the killing. You know, his, his name was Lucian Ballard, 
Mm. Terrific, terrific uh, cameraman and uh, very experienced. So naturally, he resented uh, Kubik's, uh, I guess what he thought, an overload of instructions and, and specifics that, that Stanley was looking for. You know, which means that that he was sort of just like a, a uh, you know taking taking cinematic di- uh, dictation from Stanley. But, uh, he he yes, you're right. I mean, Stanley knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, um, and uh, he articulated it clearly, and, and uh, you know he was capable of doing it himself. You know he he did he did the camera work for his uh, previous two pictures, you know Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean if if it, if it ever came down to it, he could have set up the lights himself, but of course you know that wasn't necessary. But uh, that's why he was able to 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 be able to express exactly what he wanted, and and uh, didn't sit too well with with. Uh, with with at least Lucian Ballard from, but but every you know the pictures after that we worked with some, an act a, a, a cinematographer named George Krauser in Germany for Pairs of Glory and and Ozzy Morris uh, did Lolita which which was a terrific camera and they all had tremendous respect for Stanley because uh, Stanley just you know was able to talk on their terms he knew all about lenses he knew all about the the uh, the lighting and and um, you know. Where the key light should be, and he always believed that there should be, you know, a light source. You know that it makes it look real. That the light has to be coming from somewhere. You just can't have a whole bunch of lights throwing shadows everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, anyway, that 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 was his relationship with cameraman. Now, I, the killing was. How was it received upon release? Um. It was received terrific by the critics. You know, mm-hmm. they ran like in Time Magazine. They have Current and Choice. Uh, they used to have that. You know, where they would list uh, maybe ten films uh, uh, in every edition. It was a weekly magazine. So we stayed on the, on the list of Current and Choice for a long time. We we came out uh, at the same time a, a French film, marvelous film called Refifi. You know, another robbery film, and they compared the two of us, well, both favorably. And, and um, Newsweek and, and Time Magazine gave us terrific reviews. And, and uh, actually, Time Magazine did a piece on us, you know, where we actually had a picture in Time Magazine, which, which for me, you know, coming from nowhere, suddenly you're in Time Magazine with a picture is, is um, something I never dreamed would happen. But uh, the only trouble was that the distributor, United Artists, didn't think that much of its of potential. Uh, and they opened it in New York under, under really terrible circumstances. They had a previous picture that flopped, that bombed out, and, and they needed a substitute right away to, to replace the picture. And that was at a big Broadway house, you know, and this picture should have been played at a small theater and built an audience. Mm-hmm. They opened it, <clears throat> and it, and it naturally didn't do much business, so they put it a, a, around the country as a second feature. You know, the, the, most of the country was, it was double-feature territory in those days. And the, uh, they teamed it up with a picture they had with Robert Mitchum called Bandito. Mm. And, uh, so we became the, the second feature, which which is, I don't know, it, we thought it was insulting. You know, based upon all the reviews we got, uh, we didn't think that that was a fair way to present the picture. But naturally, we had no say over it. So, yeah. uh, but, but the picture did build a career for us. You know, at least we... We came back to to, to Hollywood and, and and we had we could screen the picture for for anyone 
and it always held up. It's, uh, and the actors were impressed, and and uh, it, it really was the uh, the basis for for building a career, regardless of the fact that it it, uh, it didn't do uh, you know the kind of, it wasn't distributed the way we had hoped it would be. It should have been it should have been more of a yeah, an art film really, and built an audience in, in small theaters. I think would have done quite well that way. I think so too. And and just rewatching it again last week, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I thought it was beautiful. I mean, it it it's timeless. It absolutely absolutely holds up without a que- without question. Uh, I know I know it's never easy to get a film project off the ground, but mm-hmm. did, did the re- did the reception of the killing at least grease the wheels? For yes. uh, Paths of Glory, yes, it did. It did. The only trouble was uh, um, the, uh, the the head of the studio at, at MGM, the head of production, was, was named Dory Sherry, and he fell in love with the killing and, and thought that uh, that Kubrick and I should actually come over to MGM and make movies there. <clears throat> and and so we did. We made a deal with them to make a movie, and we presented Paths of Glory as the picture we wanted to make. And he had just had a terrible time with the Red Badge of Courage. Which which failed and, and got him in a lot of trouble for making it. And he said he didn't want another sort of anti-war, uh, downbeat kind of a movie. Which that's how he interpreted the script. So we weren't able to do that. And and, uh, and then we started on a project that never never got off the ground because Dory Sherry was was fired actually at some point. And since we were his boys, uh, you know, we never got to make a movie. So we moved on and. and then independently try to put the glory together, which which we did. Uh, but yes, it, it 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 greased the wheels for sure because uh, Stanley had no trouble in in, uh, in 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 having our script sit well with the act with the actors. Uh, it, in other words, the actors did not have any any uh, uh, doubts about Kubrick's ability to direct after after the killing, which you know which is it's a big issue. When you submit a script to an actor, he wants to know the first thing who's directing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if you don't have uh, you know substantial credits or, or you know something that you can show that you've done, uh, it's very difficult to get them to, to get interested in your script. But but so uh, the killing definitely opened up the doors for for actors to take us seriously, and uh, and that's how we did get it put together. What strikes me about these films. That that you did in collaboration, with Mr. Kubrick, and obviously the the remaining films in Mr. Kubrick's uh, career, uh, they're all very uh, risky, uh, provocative. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. we talked about the nonlinear structure of the killing, and and obviously Lolita is is a, was yeah. a big ball of controversy, but Passive Glory was 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 risky too in its approach, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you know, the, aside from that last scene, which was an added add-on uh, with, with Christiana doing the singing to the troops, there are no women in the picture. Uh, the, the men are all executed <clears throat> for, for, you know, a total injustice. But we, and and we had to we had to deal with that too. The the the, the distributor wanted the men saved in the end, and um, you know, when you get into issues like that, it, it, it's a question of why are we making the movie? We're trying to make a point that terrible things happen in war, mm-hmm. you know. And if you have one, uh, you know, the usual Hollywood happy ending where somebody saves the day and, and the men aren't executed, you have then you have no miscarriage of justice, and and uh, you have to, you know, you, you look at yourself and say, why are we making this film? It doesn't make any point. 
so yes, so that put us in in another uh, tough situation where we had to defend the the downbeat ending of the picture in order to 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 say that that that's what the picture is about, and uh, you know without you know it's not a flag waver and it's not a, a picture with women in it. There's no romance, so yeah, that's as controversial and as difficult as, as Lolita was. Yeah. Uh, you know, or the killing with it's with it's with it's what they thought of a totally unconventional structure. Yeah. I, I've I've spoken with uh, actor Richard Anderson about Paz of Glory and mm-hmm. uh, the the producer of the recent Criterion issue of Paz of Glory, which is uh-huh. which is beautiful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm curious to know because Mr. Kubrick returned to the themes of war throughout his career. It's a topic that fascinated him. Yes, it is. Yeah, and what do you think that that dynamic was in in war for for you and Mr. Kubrick both that spoke to you concerning this project? Uh, uh, I don't know. know, Kids like to play soldier, and kids like to to, uh, play with guns. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's a terrible thing. I mean, now I, I... you know, but I've always been anti-war. You know, I've always, <laughs> I mean, who is pro-war? You know, maybe a bunch of hawks that, that, that uh, uh, you know, I'm uh, going to get us all in a lot of trouble someday. But, but um, it, it has a certain fascination, I suppose, the, the fact that, that something like that can actually take place with, with human beings that, that they, they, for one reason or another, uh, actually set out to kill one another. And I suppose that's always been a fascinating uh, area to, to to investigate as to how this how this comes about and how people behave under the circumstances. Um, yeah, well, you, my, I guess you look at at uh, Death of Glory and and uh, Doctor Strange Love, and then I did the Bedford Incident. And mm-hmm. Stanley did the, the uh, Barry Lyndon, which had a lot of war scenes, and then the Troll Metal Jacket. Um, it evidences itself right down the line that, that uh, there is something intriguing and, and interesting about making films that deal with that subject. Uh, I don't know where it comes from, actually. I guess it's it's either you feel that way about it or you don't. Um, yeah. But 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 I certainly. And Stanley too never would, would make a film that that that's a flag waver, you know, that it, that that it that, that it's that's romantic and that it's encouraging and and that um, you know that macho business about. Uh, uh, I, I, maybe what's intriguing about it is that that if you people who have been in the service and, and have been in combat, I've been in the service, but I was fortunate enough, you know, to be a combat cameraman that, that never saw combat. Uh, but there is a fascination about survival, you know, and, you know, that old story about when you're, the guy next to you gets shot down, you're kind of glad it's not you, you know, and there's a certain exhilaration about that. Uh, I'm, I'm fishing for, for reasons why, why war is fascinating and for both Kubrick and myself, but it's hard to explain. It's just either well, that uh, Yeah, and I think that that's what these movies are, are questioning. I mean, what mm-hmm. what is it in us that mm-hmm. that craves conf- conflict? Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and meanwhile, Paz of Glory. I mean, it's 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 very respectful to the soldiers yeah. and mm-hmm. to the impossible situation that they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, bad things bad things happen in war. You know, I mean, people who, who you wouldn't think uh, would you, you have to look at the at the bottom line really, and and in so many cases the the uh, the end justifies the means. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and the French, you look at it from their position. They had men deserting, and they had to set examples to 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 try to keep people from deserting, and and. Uh, uh, those things happen in war, and they had to sacrifice three men, uh, you know, as the story goes in Pezzavari, in order to make the point that uh, when an attack fails, uh, they, they try to, to make it seem as if it was a cowardice and, and that there was no, um, you know, that they, they were deserting in, in, this, in the face of action and so forth, which is punishable by death. But they couldn't specify any particular people, so they picked three at random, you know, in order to make the point. So terrible things do happen in war, uh, and we wanted to bring that out, that, that there should be no war, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, for that very reason. Now, now Kirk Douglas, I, I, I've seen him quoted as saying that he, he he very much believed in the material, and, and while he thought that perhaps the film wouldn't be popular... Um, as, as of course it is, we're talking about it so many years years after the yeah. fact. But he said, w- it, nevertheless, we have to make this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he he I mean, he single handedly made made it possible that we got the picture made. We, we, he was our first choice to play Colonel Dax, mm. and unfortunately, he was uh, committed to do a stage play or to be involved in a stage play and wasn't available as much as he liked the script and. Uh, Believe it or not, we couldn't find anybody else to play the part. You know, it was just—I guess it was deemed as a, as a suicidal uh, enterprise for an actor. You know, to sign up to play a picture that was so downbeat and, and, and non-commercial. So we really couldn't get anybody. Gregory Peck wanted to do it, but he wasn't available for 18 months or some some real outlandish amount of time that we didn't want to wait. Uh, and and as luck would have it, uh, Kirk uh, somehow fell out of the, the whole Broadway play situation and was suddenly available. I mean, that mm. telephone call about Kirk suddenly being available and knowing how much he wanted, had liked the script, uh, was a lifesaver for us. And with his clout, you know, he was a major star, he was able to sort of blackjack United Artists into, into making the film because he had a commitment to do a film called... Uh, the uh, Vikings, uh, and that uh, UA was committed to do that, and he said that if, if they wouldn't do Pairs of Glory, you know, he'd take the Vikings somewhere else. And so it was really a blackmail situation. What, what do we care? You know, it's the old story. Of, uh, I just <laughs> as, said it. As long as the movie uh, gets the end made, yeah. The means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Exactly. Um, and, and, and the the visual style uh, of the film. I mean, I, I can't get those. Those tracking shots in the trenches out of my mind. Uh-huh. Uh, was was it a was it a complicated production? Well, uh, we had to we had to bend the the reality a little bit and make the trenches wide enough to accommodate the dolly, you know, so we could do that. So mm-hmm. the trenches were actually probably not in keeping with what they really looked like in the war. You know, they were much more narrower and, and uh, more difficult to get around in. But uh, Stanley was, was was committed in his mind to have these these tracking shots in the, in the in the trenches. So we had to build them uh, on the back lot, you know, uh, 
to be wide enough to accommodate the dolly and uh, and 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 men as well you know because the dolly would pass by people uh, you know on both sides of the trench mm-hmm. um, so uh and you know we had to put boards down in order to have the dolly you can't have the dolly going on on dirt because it would be bouncing all over the place so you have to put boards down the dolly tracks which it's not likely to be in in, in in trenches, but it had it had a terrific effect, and and uh, uh, so Stanley was committed to do it, and and we did it. You mentioned the ending uh, with with Christiane, and the and it, it's it probably stands out as <clears throat> the the most emotional scene uh, in a Kubrick movie for many people. Um, yeah. and and that was not originally planned as as the no. ending you said. No, no. Uh, when I Stanley had gone over to to uh, Munich ahead of me, I, I waited and I, I came over closer when Kirk came over. So I was working with, you know, sort of working with Kirk on on, on preparing for this thing, and, and Stanley was over there preparing it with with the, you know, building the sets and, and so forth. And when I got over there, he uh, he said that uh, he had this idea about a punctuation to the film. Uh, and he also knew a girl that uh, he was taking out that would be perfect to do it. And, and I smelt a rat there, you know. I just felt, <laughs> I said, "Oh boy!" And I said, "I can't believe you do this." You know, I, you know the Stanley Kubrick I know would never, never, ever uh, do anything uh, to the film in order to, to impress a, a girl or. or do a favor for somebody, you know, Stanley was strictly, totally dedicated to the film being his, but, and he said, no, it's not that at all, he said, I think the film needs a, a punctuation, I think that this would be the uh, perfect, and I, I said, I, I just, I, I, I guess I was so concerned about the fact that, that, that the fact that he was, he was romantically involved with Christiana, was, was, you know, sort of put me on the wrong track, and, and I objected to it, and didn't think that he should do it. And so the usual discussion with Stanley and I, where he says, "Well, you can't. You, you have nothing to lose." He puts it this way: "He said, look, let's shoot the scene. Let's do the scene. If you don't like it, if you don't think it works, we won't use it." Well, you can't be more fair than that, you know. <laughs> and as it turned out, I, I was standing when we were shooting the scene. I got so involved in it that I was standing there, sort of leading the men in the in the singing. You know, sort of as a, as a conductor, as the men were singing back to, to Christiana. Uh, I mean, he so convinced me when, when I saw it actually taking place, how right he was about it, that that, um, that I, I couldn't believe that I that I was against the idea of it to begin with. But yeah. uh, when we started shooting it, boy, I turned around, you know, 360 on that one. Yeah, it, and, and the. The Paths of Glory was was that received well at the time of its release? Um, yes, yes, yeah, but you know, from from the standpoint of of uh, criticism, mm-hmm. uh, it. Uh, but strangely enough, you know, Hollywood was not ready for a picture like that. That, that same year, uh, uh, the Bridge Over the River Choir came out, mm. you know, in, in '57. And of course, that got all of the the mainstream kind of, of uh, Academy Award uh, member uh, sort of adulation, uh, as opposed to to the you know, more underground and more you know serious film buffs uh, embracing Fairs of Glory. 
In fact, the Saturday Review of Literature had a big, uh, a big conflict because uh, the uh, there were two voices there. There was uh, uh, Hollis Albert. You know that name at all? Hollis Albert was one of the writers for for and Arthur Knight. They were two yes. film critics. Arthur Knight wanted to put the the uh, River Kwai on the cover, and and Hollis wanted to put. Kirk's uh, picture, you know, Pairs of Glory on the cover. And actually, Hollis Alpert won out. The, the cover of the magazine on, 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 on the month of, of uh, December or whenever it was in 57 um, had the had Pairs of Glory on the cover, not uh, River Kwai. But River Kwai got all the awards, and, and Pairs of Glory did not get nominated for, for anything, nothing. Mm. I mean, not photography, not for acting, not for screenplay, nothing, not for directing, Absolutely nothing. I mean, that, that was a big surprise because we had su- such terrific reviews of the picture. Except except maybe in New York, uh, Bosley Crowther, who was the, the dean of the New York Film Critics, writing for the New York Times, did not particularly give it a good review. He, he chose to criticize the fact that we, that we used Americanese in, 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 our dial- in our actors, you know, that we played it just the way they speak. Uh, I suppose he was looking for French accents, you know, hmm. being that it took place in the French army. And we couldn't conceive of, of having Kirk Douglas, you know, speaking with a French accent. I mean, when you look at it now, uh, I mean, that would have ruined the picture, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tim, I mean, how could you? I mean, once we made the idea of, of, of casting people like Tim Carey and Joe Turkell and Wayne Morris and, and Ralph Meeker, you know, all those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if they have to put on accents, I mean, you, I mean, you couldn't catch them. You would have to have gone with international actors, you know, or French actors or something. Uh, yeah. You know, that's probably what they would, they would have done is cast uh, Jean Gabin, you know, and people like that in the, in the picture. And so when they speak English, they would have a French accent. Um, anyway, it was a difference of, of, of Kubrick's uh, way to do the picture as opposed to Bosley Crowther, the critic, Thinking that it should, have, should probably have been done with with, uh, with 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 you know make it seem more international or, or more foreign because it took, it took place in the French army. But, yeah. But we think of it as a translation. You know, when you read a book that's written in German, when we read it, it's been translated into English. Um, you know, they 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 usually anglicize the the dialogue and the and. Uh, you know they don't always make little literal translations, and that's what we were doing. We were making a translation of this thing into American ease, American uh, presentation of it. Um, so that, that's 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 how you ask how the picture was received. It, generally speaking, it was it was uh, beyond everybody's ten best list. It was uh, except the New York Times was, was not crazy about it, and, and we didn't get any nominations for Academy mm. consideration. So, do you uh, find do you find that some of these that these films were almost made ahead of their time? Uh, they were ahead of well, their time. Well, maybe you could say that because of the fact that the that the Pezzagoria is still generating income, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with all of the home videos and, and and the cables and so forth. It's still it's still uh, being studied in schools and everything, so uh, it must have been ahead of its time because it's it, you know all of these years have passed, uh, and it's still 
you know, holding up in terms of, of uh, exhibitions around the world and, and being seen on TV. And um, but, but of course, you could you could say an awful lot of old films are being seen on TV. That's that's what TV is all about, as far as movies are concerned. They they give you you know, I look back at on the cable, you can see all kinds of of, of old movies, which is terrific. But yes, um, I think what's ahead of its time is is Kubrick. I mean, Kubrick is ahead of his time. He was he was just one of those guys that that you know he dressed in the in the in the fifties the way people have been dressing today. Mm-hmm. You know, no regards for dress code. You know, no uh, you know you didn't ever see Stanley in a dinner jacket. You never saw Stanley in, in. I mean, he would wear a shirt and tie and a jacket, but uh, he would still have the chino pants. You know, the suntan pants and, and you know that everybody's wearing today. Um, He's just ahead of his time, you know. I mean, he, yeah, even in music, I remember telling me, to, asking me if I had heard about the bossa nova and, and Astro Gilberto and Stan Getz and things like that, that that I hadn't yet caught up with, and he was already onto it. Um, he, he's just one of those guys that, that um, is, it just he's ahead of everybody. You know, I have to yeah. see, I have to see multiple screenings of his of his of his films. In order to to appreciate them more and more each time, it, which which means that he's ahead of me. You know, he's ahead of everybody. Um, I, I, find, I, I, I think of, when I look at, at some of his films, the first time I see him, I say, "Gee, that's terrific." Then I see it the second time, I say, "Gee, I think it's even better than I thought the first time." Uh, mm-hmm. There are things in it I don't get uh, all the nuances and stuff. I get them more as as I as I multiple screen the film. So it must mean that. that he got it all to begin with, and he's, so he's ahead of everybody. I find the same uh, in rewatching these films, and obviously I've seen these these films many, many times. But mm-hmm. I, I will have it, it will reach me on a deeper level ten years after first viewing yeah, uh, yeah, a, a lot absolutely. of these films because I'm different. I'm more receptive to what's what's coming from the screen uh-huh. in a way. I feel. Uh, and what? Uh-huh. How many movies survive l- like that? <laughs> New experiences every time you watch them. Yeah. Uh, was it his? Was it kind of his? Um, his uh, his obligation. I hate to use the word obligation, but the, to, to Kirk Douglas that that led to his involvement in Spartacus. No, we have no. Well, we had an obligation to Kirk because in order to. To get him to do Pairs of Glory, I mean, he wanted to do it, but he would only do it if we signed a, a multiple picture contract with him to make pictures for his company. So we had mm-hmm. that hanging over our heads. Um, no, it, it was the fact that, that uh, he got in trouble on, on uh, in the first few days of shooting. He was dissatisfied with with the director that he was using, and uh, he uh, evidently had enough uh, respect for Stanley and, and was impressed enough with having done Pairs of Glory. But uh, he came to, to us and, and, and said that he would like Stanley to replace him. And would we consider doing this? Well, it gave me an opportunity to negotiate with, with, with uh, Kirk on, uh, because our next picture was going to be Lolita. Hmm. And, uh, and we had made a deal with Kirk in order to, to sort of get out of the, this, this, I don't know, we thought it was a slave contract to make multiple pictures. Actually, it was like five pictures of only, and he would only be in two of them, so we'd have to make three other pictures for his company. I mean, that's almost a lifetime of work. To, to, to. Yeah. And so I made a deal with him that, if he, if, that first of all, I'd like him to waive uh, 
Lolita, you know, that, that he should not participate in that at all. Uh, and he was glad to do that because he really thought that that picture was not makeable. He didn't think that we could survive the censorship problems, and he was glad to wave that picture away from from being part of, of a commitment to him. Uh, and so, and we needed the money, frankly, to to, uh, to keep our company going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I made a deal with him for for uh, for Stanley to do Pesico, to do uh, Spartacus. He, and he would wave uh, Lolita, which we did after he, Stanley did Spartacus. So it wasn't a question of an obligation, more of a question that started with Kirk really wanting Stanley uh, to replace, um, uh, was it Anthony Mann? It was somebody yeah, Anthony had, Mann, yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, it has, so, I mean, that, that, it, it wasn't that, that we did it because we had to do it. We, we uh, you know, so, so, and, and Stanley, but you know, when Stanley got into uh, into it, he 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 changed a lot of stuff. I mean, there was no battle scene in that script, and uh, he did bring Gene Simmons into the picture, mm-hmm. which he didn't it didn't exist. He had he replaced whoever they had, and uh, he was right about the battle scenes. And they said they couldn't afford them. And then Stanley says, "Why can't we go to a country where we can afford it? Like Spain, we have a lot of extras that are uh, expensive." And he talked them into actually. Doing a you know a big big battle scene. He said, "How can you make a picture like this without a big battle scene?" And they they were going to do it in a surreal way with with the river floating, with helmets floating in the river, with blood and and you know sort of re, the result of a battle. Uh, and Stanley said, "You can't get away with that." It just and he was right. You know, the picture turned out to be one of the better big spectacle movies. And, yeah. Uh, and and the battle scene sure helped. Was he? Uh, did he find that a valuable experience? It, it, or w- he wasn't entirely happy with no, that experience, no. was he? Well, because it was the first picture that that, that he made. Where, you know, so when, you know. Let's say we start with the killing pairs of glory. These two pictures we made completely with no interference from anybody. Uh, yeah. We called all the shots. We did everything. Now he's actually going to work for a producer. You know, and when uh, you know the the difference being, I mean, Kirk is a major, major movie star, and he's the producer of the film, uh, and Stanley has to direct him. Uh, when I produced with Stanley, I mean, we were best friends, we were partners, we, you know, we were buddies, and we we're making a movie together. And, you know, with Kirk, Kirk, Kirk is more of an adversary in in this case, mm-hmm. and it, it was no fun making the picture. Uh, you know, sort of Kirk. Including the Stanley, uh, you know, and there's two sides to every story, of course. But according to Stanley, you know, Kirk really made his presence felt as the producer, which which uh, puts Stanley in the position of being, uh, you know, an employee, which which he yeah. was actually. But but you know, it, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, we're all employees of our own corporations or employees when you make a movie, but. The relationship is is not is not really employer employee more of working together. You know, it's it's a collaborative effort. But, mm. but Kirk was you know a very dominating type of a person, and, and um, it, it just didn't sit well with Stanley. Uh, so it was an experience that he was glad to have behind him. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you're, you're being so generous with your time. I, I just want to tell you, I really appreciate the time you're giving me. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, we have to discuss Lolita, obviously. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's no problem. I enjoy doing it. Yeah. Uh, 
now, even the tagline for Lolita, if I remember correctly, it's, how did they ever make this into Lolita into a film? I mean, did did it seem like a kind of impossible task? Can can we really accomplish this when you guys mounted it? You know, we talked about Bosley Crowther before. You know, the dean of the critics. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 punchline on the on the on the posters and on the ads were how did they ever make a film of Lolita? And he started out his review of the picture saying they didn't, <laughs> which, <laughs> which you know we were asking for it. You know, I mean, using a line like that was really setting him up for for the for the. A punch in the jar. Uh, naturally, we couldn't make the, the the picture the the way the book was because she was a twelve year old in the book. I mean, mm-hmm. she was a, you know, obviously a child. We had to have somebody that that at least uh, got us over the the business of it being, uh, you know, uh, obscene and and uh, outlandish. It, 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 you know, you just couldn't have a. Do you remember Patty McCormick in the in the Bad Seed? Yes. I mean, there's an example of a child. You know, I mean, if you if you played it like that, like like using somebody that's like 12 years old, it would be disgusting. You know, so Sue Lyon was actually only 14, but she looked like a sex object. I mean, she did definitely look like like you would not think that that the person is demented or, or you know, um, yeah, a, a criminal if if he had a, a, an affair with her, uh, even though it's wrong, of course, but. but uh, we we had uh, a, a real problem with the censorship in the, in the beginning, mm-hmm. and and so we engaged a, a uh, sort of a, what you call a technical advisor to keep us uh, on the right track. Um, it was it was uh, a gentleman that actually had had written the code seal. Uh, hmm. Martin Quigley, his name was, and um, he had he had. You know, there was a code. We didn't have a classification in those days. You either got the code seal from the MPAA or you didn't. If you didn't get the code seal, you, you're probably not going to get your picture distributed. And so we had to make sure that we got a code seal. And, uh, you know, you, subscri- you you submit the script to them in the beginning and they give you guidelines and things. If you want to get a code seal, you have to do this and that. So we... we but you know something? We didn't have that much trouble when it comes down to it because we never approached the film. Uh, as anything other than a bizarre love story, you know, we mm. said that, that all of the great love stories in, in throughout the years, or that the lovers can't get together, you know, like in Romeo and Juliet, you know, there all of those reasons uh, of, of uh, class distinction, religious reasons, people being married and can't get together because uh, you know, like the postman always rings twice. You got the problem. They got to get rid of the husband. We did the the last. Thing that hadn't been dealt with was the the the, the fact of, of the difference in ages. Yeah. So why not make that uh, you know a love story where the difference in ages turns out to be the thing that excommunicates the lovers and makes it impossible for them to get together. Uh, and so we played it that way. You know we we, we put, you know I had my brother write a beautiful love theme that we used. Uh, Nelson Riddle was, was incorporated in the score of the film, and uh, and. We decided that we had the book working for us. We knew that the audiences would have read the book or knew, or knew all about it, and that they'll come into the audience, come into the theater with a predisposition of thinking that Humbert Humbert was an evil, dirty old man, and that we wanted him to, them to leave the theater thinking he was the most innocent man in the piece. 
and that's the way we played it. Uh, yeah. And and so uh, we did not have that much trouble with the senses because of that. You know, we were not explicit in, in any love scenes. Uh, we we didn't have, uh, uh, you know, we, we we just stayed away from all of the things that, that were that were already in the people's mind. We didn't have to do it. We were lucky in that the book was a bestseller and that most people were familiar with it. So uh, so you didn't it, feel it, at all. You you didn't feel at all stifled creatively because of the the censorship issue issue no no because 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 we didn't plan or ever want to do anything that was explicit we didn't want to see them you know actually going at it in bed together we i mean that would have been i mean it just would have taken away from the way we wanted to tell the story we just wanted mm-hmm. to see you know that, that this man is going to destroy himself because of the inability for him to to get through to a to a, a young teenager you know but uh, they, you know, coming from different places, and that, that, that it's a whole world apart, and that he's only going to just destroy himself uh, being in love with this person. And you notice that 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 we, um, if you've read the book, you notice that Humbert Humbert had a had a, had a history of being interested in, in little girls. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, going all the way back to his childhood, and, and we decided that there would be no, uh, you know, no. Uh, Nothing about him to indicate that he had a, a, a uh, you know a predisposition for for young girls. That this was a single girl that he happened to stumble upon and and and, and just just got uh, uh, he fell in love with. So, yeah. so he didn't have a background. You know, he was not a, a child molester to begin with. You know, when I when I recently rewatched the film, what struck me about it was how how darkly funny it is. Yeah, uh, there, there, there's such tremendous humor in it, and yeah. and James Mason's performance really mm-hmm. struck me the last time I watched it. Was was that humor lost on audiences at first because of the provocative nature of the film? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, most most people uh, that got to see it uh, thought it was was uh, you know that, that the picture played well, that you know that it, that it worked. Uh, so that humor is part of it. Uh, I think uh, if anyone has seen the the remake, you know that, that was mm-hmm. done uh, with Jeremy Irons, and the, there wasn't any humor in the picture. That's yeah. that's the thing that destroyed that movie was that they they thought that I guess over the passage of time they could be more explicit, and so that that was a, a, a mistake that they made, and they also uh, eliminated any any humor in the picture. It it, it, it wasn't it, it, the whole thing had to be. Played as as being humorous. Uh, our example, uh, as opposed to theirs, would be that we use Peter Sellers to play Claire, Claire Colty, and and uh, those scenes were designed to be uh, comical and, and humorous, and 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 they used a terrific actor Franklin Jello to play mm-hmm. uh, Humbert Humbert with, with as a sinister in the shadows, dark figure that that was looming, and and uh, hanging around. I mean, it it, it was spooky and and. You know that that's an indication of that, that they were totally in the wrong direction, and, and and I thought it was a you know a very beautiful film that they did, and it was photographed beautifully. That uh, Maricone's music was terrific. Jeremy Irons was great. Even Dominique, whatever her name was, that played Lolita was terrific. Uh, but they just were you know they just went in the wrong direction on the picture, and it never it never got released theatrically. Uh, it went straight yeah. to Showtime. Remember because it just didn't play. 
I uh, do, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and in our picture, uh, uh, you asked about if it was received with the human. Yeah, I, I suppose. But, you know, MGM, who eventually wound up as a distributor, were afraid of it. You know, they did. They, they they did they were they just felt that uh, they probably had too many family films and things like that and and we had, we were held up by the by the legion of decency for six months before they gave us a a you know they the got us off the condemned list along with Dolce Vita we were on the condemned mm-hmm. list and when they condemn a picture you know it's harmful because they they advise all their Churches and everything to to uh, and exhibitors, you know that they run the picture that they'll, they'll put them on a, on a list of people not going to their theaters. So it took six months to to, to convince the Legion of Decency to give us a D rating rather than a condemned rating. And so I think that MGM really did not get behind the picture to, to give it a full distribution. I think they were afraid of it. Um, so it. it um, I don't know what it, I, I never know, you know, whether it had a success at the box office or not. Because uh, Stanley and I, fortunately, I made a deal to sell out our interest in that picture before it got released, which was a very, very good deal for us. Hmm. I don't think we ever would have would have been as successful monetarily uh, with our profit participation as we were having sold it in advance. So. Um, um, Something. So uh, I don't know really whether the picture, you know, was not involved in, in terms of, of profits. So I never got any reports as to how the picture did. But soon that, that MGM sort of uh, was very protective about it and didn't give it a full distribution. Something else that strikes me, obviously, about the film <clears throat> is Peter Sellers, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and, and and obviously uh, Mr. Sellers' work with. Kubrick on, uh, on Strange Love as well is yeah. <laughs> is, is uh, legendary. Uh, he that must have been a unique collaboration because he really allowed Peter Sellers to let loose in, in those films. Uh, not yeah yeah that, that's just as we did in in uh, Lolita. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know uh, the only thing is Pete, Pete himself had had put some some. Uh, a governor on the thing because it could get out of hand. For instance, in the Lolita picture, there's a a, uh, a scene where the the, uh, the psychiatrist from the school comes over. Uh, it's really it's really Claire Crowley masquerading as, as as you know this Doctor Zenth who comes over to to uh, sort of blackmail Humbert Humbert into letting Lolita be in the school play, and. Uh, we originally had that plan to do uh, Peter in drag, that he was going to play a female teacher that was uh, a psychiatrist or something. And actually, the set was all lit, and he came down, and he was wearing one of the... the he looked like Mrs. Marble, you know, with the with the, the hat with the feather in it and the, and the tweed suit with the sensible shoes, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that whole bit. And uh, we just couldn't do it. I mean, just that it's too much. We're... we're you know, we're going to hurt the film by, by you know, it's almost like slapstick. It's, it's too much. And so on the spot, they decided to, to do a, a play with a thick German accent and a Dr. Zemp, you know, like a, almost like a, a like a Nazi would be in one of those movies. Um, so uh, we certainly had a really a good and, 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 and let's say successful uh, experience with, with Pete, uh, you know, sort of letting him go. 
And, yeah. uh, and so the only thing, again, the governor was put on in, in strange love is because Pete was going to play the uh, Slim Pickens role as well. He was going to play four parts instead of the three that he eventually played. Mm. And uh, Pete, again, I remember when I talked to Stanley, I was with him in London, and he said, you know, I'm having trouble with Pete. He doesn't want to play the uh, the bomb, you know, the, the guy that goes down with the bomb, uh, the pilot of the plane. And uh, he said he thinks it's too much. And, you know, Stanley says, well, maybe he's right. You know, I mean, he's going to play the president. He's going to play the the, uh, the, uh, the guy that does the scenes with, uh, uh, with Sterling Hayden, and he's going to play Strangelove. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's enough, you know. And, and it was right, you know. I, I mean, Slim Pickens did a terrific job in that thing. He was, he was just perfect for the role, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But, but he could have done it too. I mean, he can he can do the Western accent and all that stuff. Was uh, was Peter was Peter ch- channeling uh, uh, Stanley in, uh, in in Lolita in some of those scenes? No, uh, just a minute. Okay. I have to take the volume on my on my cell phone here. Um, uh, was he channeling Stanley? It, it, it seems like he he was playing Stanley or impersonating him in some of those moments. Oh no no no! In in Lolita? Yeah, there's there's a scene in the balcony where it, it, I mean, it sounds like he 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 is impersonating Kubrick's voice, and I've read reports that that he was playing with that. No no, uh, Peter's voice in the picture was based on an idea that I had <clears throat> because I had a friend. Um, named Norman Grant. Do you know that name, Norman Grant? At all? He, mm-hmm. he was known for, for producing uh, jazz records. He, he was uh, the producer of jazz at the Philharmonic, which, which toured all over the world and, and made a lot of records. And he had a, a very strange way of speaking. So when Peter and Stanley and I got together before the picture started, Peter wanted to try to find how he's going to, what kind of an American accent he's going to affect. <clears throat> and he started giving me examples of what he could do, and, and when he when he when he came across with the way he, he wound up in the film, I said, "My God, you sound just like Norman Grant." So so Stanley said, "Why don't we send Norman Grant a, a you know a, a scene from the picture? Let him do it on let Norman do it on tape and send it back to us, and so we'll have we'll have an example of what Pete can 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 imitate." So I called. He, uh, Norman and, and he was in Switzerland at the time, and I sent him a, a uh, copy of the script, and he read some of the stuff on tape and and, and got it back to us, and, and that's what Peter actually was doing was he was doing Norman Grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I don't know I, I don't I don't think he was imitating Stanley when he was on the porch, you know, doing that scene with with uh, James Mason. You know, it was yes, sir. pretty much an improvised scene about the pretty little girl at the bed and the, and the and all of this business. Uh, the, I think he was staying true to the to the original. If he had something going about with Stanley, I I, I don't know what it was. You know, in, in imitating Stanley because. Uh, yeah, I, Stanley I, I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know for sure. It's a, it's just something I read, and you know, you read a lot of things, <laughs> and they're just you know fluff. But so I wanted to verify. Well, if it was, you know, I didn't know about it. I mean, if he was doing that, I didn't know about it. Uh, I don't think Stanley knew, knew about it either, because he would have. You know, Stanley and I shared everything. I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of, at the end of that day, when we would go to dinner or we we'd hang out, 
uh, he would probably have said, you know, he was doing me today or something like that, but it never came up. So I don't. If, if it was true, neither Stanley or myself were aware of it. Uh, it may have been an inside joke that Pete was doing. I, I don't know. <laughs> His work with uh, with Sue Lyon. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it, it's a sensitive story. He's he's working with a fourteen year old uh, girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what was what was his approach with her? Uh, well, she was an extremely advanced fourteen year old, so so he didn't have to deal with her as a child, and um, you know, and I was very helpful, you know, in terms of, of off the set, uh, you know, keeping her her, her uh, disposition up. You know, I mean, she was away from from Los Angeles. She was uh, doing a she had never done a feature film before. I mean, it was a and it had a lot of pressure on her. So we we had to to keep her uh you know, to keep her composed and, and, and in a happy mood and everything. Uh but Stanley worked with her like he would work with any actor or actress. She was intelligent enough that she didn't have to be baby. He didn't have to, to uh patronize her in any way. He didn't have to, to uh treat her differently. Which she she'd been smart enough to recognize that she was being conned or that she was being uh manipulated. Stanley doesn't manipulate people at all. Uh, you know, he gives it the way he feels it, and, and if they have a, a modicum of intelligence, they're going to appreciate it. Uh, so uh, there was nothing special that, that we did with Sue, that uh, you know, it, 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 except just recognize the fact that 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 she was, you know, not a, I mean, she was a child really, and, and that she had. Uh, we had a teacher there, you know, on the set all the time. You know, which is sort of, 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 you know, a good thing to have. And her mother was there, and uh, we kept her, you know, happy. Really, we got her a nice apartment where she was comfortable. We had a car to drive her around, and uh, she, 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 and she liked both Stanley and myself. I mean, she really did like us. It wasn't a question of, of uh, uh, you know, how some actors and actresses really uh, they throw a hate on on the director or on the producer because they're being told what to do. Uh, we all got along great, you know. It was fun making that movie, and and uh, and Mason liked it. You know, that's another thing. Uh, the whole uh, the whole crew and the whole staff and and the actors they all liked her, and and she was a good kid. And and um, so there was really, I mean, I can't I can't come up with anything uh, that's dramatic or that's that's exceptional about Stanley working with her. Um, yeah. You know, it's. Uh, she, she, and and you know she, she was sort of like a natural actress. You know she understood the role. To, uh, uh, there was no, you didn't have to explain things to her that, you know, to, to get her to, to to get the performance out of her. You had to get it like the the the, act, the method thing of getting her to think about other things and so forth. Um, it was there. She, she just was. She, she was playing well later, you know, and, and uh, she she understood it and knew how to play it. I yeah. don't know whether whether she could have played a a, uh, a debutante, you know, coming out of finishing school or something like that. But she could play just a you know a, 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 just a, a normal kid, uh, a teenager, which she did. She's terrific in the movie, and I mean, it's, yeah. it's a movie filled with just terrific performances that that I cherish. Uh, it's yeah. a movie that I cherish. I, I really do love the film. Uh, had you planned to do more films with with Kubrick? No, no. No. After after 
the, the, I had it in my mind all the time after Lolita to, to, to want to direct myself. You can't help it when you're working with Stanley. He he makes it seem easy, you know. And the, mm-hmm. what a what a misleading thing that was for me. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not easy. Directing is a very difficult thing to do. But you know, like all like all uh, experts and all, I hate to use the word geniuses, but you know, when Joe DiMaggio went after a fly ball, he made it look easy. You know, I mean, he's He's just so smooth, and, and maybe some other outfielder would have had to struggle to catch the ball and make it look like a spectacular catch. You know, the same play DiMaggio makes, and it looks routine. Well, Stanley, as a director, made it seem like, you know, I can do that, you know, <laughs> which is mm. so misleading, you know. But anyway, uh, I, I, once we got involved with Strange Love, uh, which we were going to do as a serious film, uh, it was based on a book called Red Alert, which was a serious piece and, and a great suspense story. Basically the same story. And uh, so Stanley got together with uh, the, the the author of Red Alert, Peter George. I don't know what his pen name or his real name or what, but they, they did a screenplay working on one. And I would I was out in California. I'd come into New York and, and work with Stanley on it. Uh, and... We, you know, when we got into the late hours at night, and we started to get a little silly and giddy, and we said, you know, how would this play as a comedy? You know, because sometimes something so serious, you know, starts to you start to, to think of it as, as getting funny because, you know, like when they're having a meeting in the war room, we saying, what, ha- what, what if they had to send out for, you know, takeouts, you know, Chinese takeout, <laughs> or, or, yeah because it's getting late and everybody's hungry, you know, and then they have the guy with the apron on coming up, taking the orders from everybody. You know, we started mm-hmm. laughing and, and said, Jesus, this would be terrific comedy. And then, nah, nah, we, you know, why kill a good thing? We got a winner here. Let's let's, let's keep it straight. So we, we finished the script uh, as, a, as a suspense movie, and we owed a, we owed one more movie to uh, Seven Arts, which, which financed, uh, they financed Lolita. So, so we had. To, so I convinced Elliot Hyman, who was head of Seven Arts at the time, to take on uh, Red Alert. I guess we called it Edge of Fear, Edge of Doom, or something, as as, as our next picture. And he didn't want to do it because he didn't like the idea of, of city swapping and and uh, you know had an ending like that. Uh, you know what I'm talking about when I say city swapping. You know, because we dropped the bomb on Russia, we had to we had to do something to, to let them get even with us for their, you know, to to appease them. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, he he, I, I finally convinced him. I begged him to please, you know. So now he agreed, and and this was my chance to move on because I had now arranged the financing for 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 Edge of Fear, Edge of Doom, and and uh, Stanley was capable of doing it himself without me. <laughs> So I opened an office in California and started to, to look to see if I could pursue a career as a film director. It wasn't long after that, that Kubrick called me and said, you remember when we were talking about doing this thing as a comedy? And my heart sunk, you know. I, I, I figured, <laughs> oh, my God. I, I leave him alone for 10 minutes and he's going to just ruin his career. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I, I, I think this thing plays much better as a comedy. I can, I can make the same point as I want to make even better. In, the, in a satire or a comedy, he said, absolutely. Um, I, I come across a, a guy named Terry Southern, and mm. uh, he's he's terrific. He's written, you know, he told me about the Magic Christian and uh, question filigree and different books that, that Terry had written. 
And I said, yeah, I know, he's terrific. He said, yeah, he and I are, are going to work on this thing, and, and it's really going to be terrific. And, you know, I just felt, I felt, my God, you know, I should have stuck around because now he's, he's going to, you know, if this thing doesn't work, he's going to really have a, a, a lemon on his hands. So it turns <laughs> out, I think it's my favorite Kubrick picture, uh, the way it turns out. He, he, you know, just like the my my doubts about having Christiana sing the song at the end of Desiree, I had my doubts about whether this could work for for a full-length feature, you know. I knew it could be funny in spots, but I didn't know how it could sustain itself until I saw it. <laughs> and then, wow, I mean, what a terrific movie it is. It, it's oh, it's, it, it's just unbelievably great. It, it, you know, I could see this picture over and over again, which I have, and, and enjoy it as much each time. I, mean, I just think it's so clever and so so terrific. Um and, and the uh, humor works. The humor works for it because uh, yeah. it's, it's it's very funny, and and then you're reminded of the incredibly serious and severe implications. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, Stanley always said that that you can't make fun of fun. You can only make fun of serious things that people hold in reverence, like mm-hmm. religion and and you know sickness and and you know, funerals, and war. Uh, and he's right. You know, if you make you, I mean, you can make funny pictures, but they won't be classics like this. I mean, usually they they have to be based on the serious subject that people hold in reverence. And when you make fun of it, it, it really, to me, it's really funny. I mean, it's it's called black humor, you know. And, and uh, yeah. maybe, maybe that's when you ask about what Stanley and I were made of, you know, how, how we got along so well together is we both laugh at the same things, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, it's it's. Um, but in my, my, I, I felt that it, that it, you know, that, that I appreciated that it could work as humor. But I figured, you know, you don't get off a good thing. You know, when you have a winning team, you don't change the lineup. And and we had a winning thing in the in a serious version of it. You know, and just being having a certain amount of a business background, uh, I just felt that you don't take chances like that. You 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 know, you got a winner, take advantage of it. I know he'd make a great picture. As a suspense movie, but mm-hmm. I, I I have to admit that that he even made a greater picture as as a uh, satire and a comedy, and um, but there again he didn't win any Academy Awards. You know he got the New York Critics Award for best director, best uh, I guess a lot of best from the New York film critics, but uh, but, but not popular in Hollywood. You know it's just a shame. The Academy in general. It didn't didn't give him very much uh, love. No. Uh, no. It, w- was that something that that bothered him? Or, or no, uh, no, he... not that I know of. Not, yeah. not that I know of. Um, you know, when we did Lolita, we we um, Stanley and I actually put together the final script that we used, and uh, we said, well, whose name? We we you know we had a draft by Nabokov, we had a draft by Carla Willingham, we had uh, submitted scenes by other the writers that we knew, and we took them all, and, and, and Stanley and I sat in the attic where Christiana made our dinners and lunches and things, and, and, and we put together the final screenplay, and we said, whose name are we going to put on it, you know, and we figured out, we, we better we better make it a sole screenplay from Novikov, because we've, we've, we've varied from the book to such an extent that if our names were on it, they would have a real case to, to accuse us of... of uh, you know, violating the, the master's work. But mm. if you put 
Nabokov's name on it alone as a sole screenplay writer, how can they criticize him for changing his own his own work? And so we did that, and uh, he got nominated for an Academy Award. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so ironic. I mean, it's so ridiculous that he got nominated and uh, he didn't win. Uh, you know that 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 year, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird won the screenplay. You know. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's how things go. When we talk about the Academy, Stanley just never won an award. I, I got a lot of nominations. Um, maybe on Spartacus there was some. I don't know if anybody won anything, but um, there were a lot of nominations. Yeah. But, but Stanley never got an award. But neither did Charlie Chaplin. So. so. Well, he got he got an award for visual effects, I think, from the Academy for 2001, I, I believe. Yeah, but there'd be other people's names on it. But yeah. yeah. He never got an yeah. award as a director. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think he won the director's award, you know, at the at the guild, the director's guild. Mm-hmm. I think he did. Um, yeah, because his, his acceptance speech was, was taped. You know, he didn't come over for it. He, he, doesn't, he didn't fly or anything like that. So he sent a tape over. Uh, and... Um, you know, they ran it at the dinner when when he got the award. I forget for which picture it was. It, uh, oh. I can't remember. Uh, the last picture he did before Eyes Wide Shut was, was Full Metal Jacket, wasn't it? And, it was. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And before that, it was The, the Shining. And before mm-hmm. that, Barry Lyndon. And before that, like Clockwork Orange in, in 2001, yeah. and then Strangelove in reverse order. Yeah. When you, what a body when of you, work. Can you? I know. It, it, it's incredible. And people talk about – I mean, I know that from from what I've seen and read that Mr. Kubrick kind of he, – he always regretted not making more films. But when you see yeah. the films that he did make – Films that last forever, and and we're all still trying to decipher the mysteries of these films. And uh, I mean, he he gave us so many films in just one. You know, yeah. It's so, yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Now, yeah, the the projects that went down that that, that never got made. Uh, I guess he did artificial artificial intelligence. Uh, that Spielberg uh, did for him. You know, when he mm-hmm. passed away. He, I don't think Stanley would have done it the same way. Um, you know, it, 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 I think it, it, I guess Spielberg made it more mainstream and, and more. Uh, uh, I, I I don't know. It's hard to say, but but uh, you know, he never did the, the Napoleon film he wanted to do. Mm. He, he never did the film on that uh, he had developed on on uh, the Nazi concentration camps and stuff. To, I guess when when, when Stephen did uh, um, the one with Liam Neeson, Schindler's List, yeah, Schindler's List, that, that kind of uh, puts Stanley off. Um, he he had developed Napoleon, uh, and and then there were several Napoleons that were made. You know, one with Rod Steiger, I think, and, and mm-hmm. you know he 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 he's so meticulous. You know, he takes his time in developing things that. By the time he gets it developed, somebody else has done something similar. You know, he ran into that with uh, Full Metal Jacket on, on Platoon. You know, yeah. Platoon got all you know, got all the attention and everything, and Full Metal Jacket uh, came out afterwards, so it, it naturally had to suffer for it. Um, 
The, the only way he, he was ahead of the was, was, was with Doctor Strangelove. He did uh, Failsafe was you know the exact same story, and he was mm-hmm. able to come out ahead of Failsafe because there was a, a plagiarism uh, problem there that that Stanley waived. You know that, that if, if Columbia had both pictures, and, and so Columbia agreed to put out Strangelove first if Stanley would waive any plagiarism claims against the. I guess the guy's name was Verdict or somebody that wrote Chelsea. Uh, but that's Stanley was a victim of, of Platoon and a victim of Napoleon's and, and and Schindler's List and all of that. So it explains some of the the, the, the movies that didn't get made. Yeah. Now, but you, you, you carried on a dialogue with and and a friendship with Stanley throughout the yeah. remainder of his life after your collaborations yes, uh, yeah, with him. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, we we did and, and um I went to see him over there, and and, uh, and uh, we had a great time. You know, he lived in this compound, you know, where he had out in in, in the country, in, in mm. England, and uh, we spent a whole night together and, and uh, reminisced about a lot of things. And you know, I hadn't seen him for a while, but, but it was just like seeing him yesterday. Uh, it, mm. uh, you know, when you spend seven years, day and night together, you know, as best friends and, and hanging out. When the geography separates, you, know, you, you uh, when you do get back together again, even if years pass by, you look different. You know, he changed his look a lot, and and but the same guy, you know, same dedication, the same uh, interest in things. Uh, um, he was interested in a lot of things. You know, he, he wasn't. Uh, he, you, we used to. We used to read books on things and then go into them. You know, for, for instance, uh, playing the stock market. You know, we, mm-hmm. neither one of us knew the first thing about it, but we'd read the books on it and go to Merrill Lynch and sit there, you know, watch the ticker and buy and sell stocks. It was fun to do. And then we'd play poker, uh, read the book on poker, and, and, and sit in, you know, a high-stakes table table stakes game we would play, $500 buy-in in the old days. Uh, that's a lot of money and for two guys that aren't really good players. He held his own, strangely enough, you know, playing with real killers, you know, real poker players. Um, so he, he had a lot of interest in a lot of things, you know, sports particularly. He was he was great interest in fights, boxing, and, and you know he did a short called the Day of the Fight or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's he's he, he was he, he you know he he was not a a tunnel vision one one interest guy. I mean his two main interests were his first his family and, and his film, but uh, he 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 loved to pick people's brains. Uh, uh, not ticket brains. I mean, to hear what they had to say. You know, he'd love to to, to to talk to veterans about their war experiences and things. He was very interested. He was a listener. You know, uh, which is rare for somebody. You know, usually actors and, and, and people like that are always doing all the talking. Uh, you know, they're just on stage all the time. But Stanley was a listener. You know, he really uh, when he was with people, they really felt. That, that uh, they were appreciated, you know. That, that that's rare, you know. And I keep I, I keep guess, hearing that. I keep hearing that time and time again. That he he was just endlessly fascinated by yeah, yeah. by everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was. Yeah, you know, he, we used to have discussions. I mean, things like, do you think that the that the the best college team could beat the worst professional team? You know, <laughs> he was trying to make, you know, figure out things like that. You know, uh, and. Uh, he, he was uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to be redundant about it, but yeah, he he was very interested in what people had to say, and 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 a reader. You know, God Almighty, when I met him, he had read every book you could imagine, seen every movie that you could imagine. He introduced me to foreign films, which, you know, up to that time I had been sort of a mainstream film fan, uh, you know, like loving Hollywood movies, and he and he introduced me to films I never never knew existed. You know, Fellini and 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 uh, Antonioni and and uh, Max Ophuls, of course, was his big mm-hmm. hero, and uh, and started educating me on, on, on the Japanese films and this. And so we'd go to movies, and you know, I'd never been in an art house in my life. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what they were, and suddenly I became a, a, a you know, as interested as he was uh, in film. So if you can, if you can, de- if you can define it, uh, what what do you think his his legacy is? What do you think he left? Uh, the cinematic form. Uh, I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because of his, of his body of work being so diverse, you can't really say like he was the king of the, of, the, of the film noir, or he was the king of comedy, or he, you know, like like a, a Preston Sturgis, or you know, those kind of people that that. Uh, uh, it was specialized in satire and, and uh, sophisticated comedies and things. He he made everything. I mean, he, the only thing he didn't do was a musical. He didn't do a western because he, he just wasn't interested. But he could have done it. I mean, Stanley could have done it easily. Uh, but so I can't define. You know, because when you go from 2001, which is probably the the, the finest uh, science fiction film. Uh, if not the finest, certainly in the first three or two or one, uh, and then you go to to uh, something like uh, Lolita, which is basically a, and Strange Love, which are basically comedies. Uh, it, 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 I mean, he's on both sides of the spe- spectrum. I don't know how to define him. I mean, he's yeah. you know I hate to use the word genius because that's so you know it, it uh, but he is. I mean, as much as I don't like that word, uh, he is a genius, and, and the fact that, that he could be so so uh, uh, so have such expertise on both sides of the of the spectrum with with comedy or with serious stuff or with drama or, or whatever, um, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, can anybody define Kubrick? I mean, maybe maybe Christiana, who, who is his wife, would have the best shot at that. Um, as a uh, as a friend, I guess I guess you would say he was, uh, you know, inquisitive. He was one of the most curious people that I've ever met. He was the most the most well-read and intelligent person that I've ever met. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw saw him read the book called On Thermonuclear War, written by by uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Whatever his name is, he worked for the Rand Corporation. Okay. He was okay. on the phone with this man, discussing on a one-on-one basis, you know, as if he was an expert, mm. talking to to uh, I can't, I, his name escapes me at the time, but he was the expert on on think tank uh, nuclear war and all of that. You, you know what the Rand Corporation is? I do. The think, yes, the think tank that 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 uh, Herman Kahn, his name is. You hear that name before? Herman Kahn. He would be mm. on the phone with Herman Kahn. He would be on the phone. He, he, I, I actually witnessed when, when he was working with Arthur Clarke, you know, when he was developing um, 
2001, I'd go over to his apartment and Herman and, and uh, Arthur Clark would be there. I mean, Stanley suddenly is coming on like a, like an expert in, in astrology or something. It's just unbelievable that, mm-hmm. that he could he could pick up things from scratch and suddenly become an expert on it. Didn't he design the lenses or make some lenses for Barry Lyndon when they were shooting with candlelight right. and so forth? Yeah, you know, yeah. Where, did that, where did that come from? For Christ's sakes, he's not a scientist or, or, or a chemical engineer. Or, or I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, mm. So, I mean, I can't put it into a single sentence. But uh, I, I suppose you just say that, that, that this guy was. You, you heard of the expression, you know, a, a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. He was a jack of all trades and a master of all. You know, and, and, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the only way I can put it. Let's, let's, let's leave it. Let's leave it at that. He's a jack of all trades and a master of all. 